even though he is not here to do so. But Oh, it is good to, to get into the New Testament. And I know that those of you who are hanging in there with us reading through the Bible, I know that you are glad to get to the New Testament as well. <laughs> Today we're going to be looking at what greatest sermon by the greatest preacher, a sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5 and the the sermon itself is three chapters, 5, 6 and 7 where this this sermon so many things that you know of in Christianity comes from this sermon. When you hear about salt of the earth, light of the world, the Beatitudes, all of that comes from Sermon on the Mount. When you, one of the most famous passages that is misused in the text, judge not do not judge or you too will be judged sermon on the mount and so it is i don't know how comforting it is but they have been misquoting jesus for a long long time <laughs> so i want us to to look at this the eternal ramifications of exceeding righteousness that is a ridiculous title right now but hopefully it makes sense in the next 30, 40 minutes. And I want us to look. I'm just going to read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, as we begin. And It's dangerous to read the Sermon on the Mount out of context. It's, it is not wise, and so I want to put it in proper context as we go to go through this today but I don't want anyone to think that we can be accepted by a measure of our righteousness because if you misquote it that's what it says and we'll get to that but this is not a way for us to be accepted by God, by righteousness, not by our righteousness at least. And so, hear the word of the Lord in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17 through 20. The Bible says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teach, teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it seems in that verse, verse 20, 
that if you somehow would pass or surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will you would enter the kingdom of the heaven. But we who have been in the word, we who have grown up in church, we know that this is certainly not the case. But I want to to look at the setting of the sermon. I want us to to look at the context. We must remember the context of the sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. So, looking at how this fits. Remember in Matthew chapter 1, where we were last week, that Matthew begins by calling attention to the sins of God's people. Matthew 1, verse 21 says, She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When we were going through the Old Testament, we remember God's people, certainly near the end of the Old Testament, not doing so well with that. They stunk. They were falling away. In fact, they were running away and God was judging them God was punishing them for their sin and so the the Israel ends in failure in the Old Testament Matthew reminds them and calls attention to the sins of God's people there in the beginning and Matthew ends by calling attention to the death of God's Messiah and so the beginning of Matthew he reminds them of their sin and highlights the fact that God sent Jesus to forgive them of their sin, but in the end of the book of Matthew, of course, it ends with the death of Christ. And what's interesting is of how much, you think about when the Bible opens, Genesis, how much time is covered in the first two chapters of Genesis, right? A long time. But then the end of Matthew, Matthew 21 to the end, those seven chapters one week. Now, it's a, it's a pretty important week. But the last week of, of Jesus' earthly life really happens in that time. And so Jesus' death, important. And Matthew's calling attention to that. But not only must we remember the context in the Gospel of Matthew, but we must remember the context of the sermon in the history of redemption. Really, because all along in the Old Testament, they were leading up to Christ's birth. That one day, there would be a Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And His is the long-awaited kingdom. And so, we spent like nine months in the Old Testament. But when you see how long they anticipated, how long they waited for this moment, it was worth it. And to see that you and I are a part of this kingdom. The Old Testament looked forward to it. Matthew introduces the king. And I believe that Matthew's first because Matthew's careful to show Jesus as the fulfillment of redemptive history. If you remember, as we talked in the Old Testament, 
Man is sinful. Man cannot save himself. But God gave the sacrificial system to call attention to death is required for our sin. And so, one day, though, there will be this one sacrifice that will take all of our sin. And so Matthew shows he is the long-awaited Messiah. And so now there is a new people that God is building through Christ, and there is this new kingdom through Christ. And so that's the setting of the sermon. Now the subject of the sermon. This, this text... The Old Testament, they had so many commandments. They had like 613 commandments. There were like 248 commands that you should do, and that leaves like 365 commands that you shouldn't do. So 365 negative, 248 positive, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they were good at it. They gave their lives to keeping the law. In fact, so much so <clears throat> that they would set up laws to keep them from breaking other laws. Seriously, like, for example, if you couldn't take but 500 steps in a day, like on the Sabbath, they would make their own rule, we don't take but 400 steps a day, just in case we were actually to stumble on the 400th step and fall over and take another step to keep ourselves from falling, we're still good. It was that kind of thing all the time. And so they, this hedge of protection, right, that we talk about, this hedge, they made these laws as a hedge to keep them from breaking God's law. And you would see it's that important too if that's what you were depending on for your salvation. But Jesus demands a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. But hold on. Don't get swept up in this. Perhaps you've been to churches or you grew up in homes where religious works was the way. That's how I grew up. I grew up in a home. My dad, both of my parents really, they grew up in church church attendance was very important <clears throat> I don't know how many of you historical Baptists remember this but long ago when I was a kid they had these these pins for perfect attendance right and you get this pin and because you're wearing a suit because Jesus did you hang it on your lapel right and so you hang this perfect attendance pin and then the second year of perfect attendance, there's, of course, second or whatever it says on it, and it attaches to the first one. And so it's kind of like 
I pictured it like in the military. As you accomplish something, you get a medal or a pin, and so you wear it proudly, right? And so you have these, these old dudes that are walking around with these pins that as you walk, it's like a chain. It's just flopping like this because, you know, and you look down there, 67? Dude, that's cool, you know? And that's the way we grew up, perfect attendance. I had perfect attendance in, in school. I had perfect attendance in church because that's what you did. And you wore a certain outfit, and you do your hair a certain way, and oh my goodness, every Sunday morning. There's three brothers, right? So we had to line up because my dad was the one that knew how to do the hairstyle. And so we line up. And because you know how sarcastic I am, and I cannot stop from saying sarcastic things. I would get in line, and when it was my turn, I'd say, all right, make me a nerd. And then, as I was reeling from the pain of saying stupid things, my dad would do my hair. So it would be slicked down, and he used this stuff in a tube called Heads Up. I remember that. And it was black and red labeling on it every Sunday. Had to be just right. And my dad would look back because he was getting to that point where he had to read like this. So he'd get back and look at it and go, and that last little whip like they do on Cool Whip, you know, on my hair every week. So we would march off, all three of us, looking like little dorks. But doggone it, this is the way you get to God. That's how I grew up. I felt like I grew up in a Pharisee's home. And, and we knew Scripture. We memorized it. We knew it. We knew Scripture. And if there was a memory verse that our teacher sent home or whatever, it was memorized. We were ready to recite it and all of these things because Jesus demands a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so you got to be on your game. You can't miss church. You can't dress poorly. You got to say the right thing. You got to do the right thing. But I feel that we trip over this. And I I want to get get it right. What he is saying here is, is not more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. This is it. And what baffles me is, is though this is in the Sermon on the Mount, 2020 church members trip over this still. If I can do enough good, God will have to take me. And I see it, I hear it at funerals, especially, when people are tempted to lie and say good things about people that are probably on fire. They did so many good things, they were at church. They did all of these good things. And, and so they're in heaven now. And 
That's just not the gospel. That's not how it works. It is by grace. And so, if our good works outweigh our bad works, then we go to heaven, right? No! This... So if the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if they make a 94 on the test, if we can just make a 95, we're good. Because Jesus said it. Jesus demands a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not the truth. It's not the point. And what he means by that is these guys gave their lives to keeping every thing in the law and he made it very clear in his lifetime and in the word that these guys are lining up for the pit of hell unless they trust Christ by faith and if we follow right behind the scribes and Pharisees to do all of these good works in order to get to heaven and if we do so saying that I am a Christian, I have walked an aisle, I joined the church, I've been dunked, but nothing ever has changed in my heart. Why would we feel okay with that? If we're okay with that, then we defame the power and work of Christ in our heart. We diminish what Christ did on the cross. If we can do it our own, then his work on the cross is unnecessary. And that makes God a little nuts in putting his son through all of that. We can just do it ourselves. And so this exceeding righteousness is evident in our attitudes. Like, like we aren't seeking to keep the letter of the law, we're seeking to obey the spirit of the law. So hear this. When he's saying that Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody there knew that they kept it perfectly. And so, all right, can you be better than perfect? No. But even if you are perfect, you still have this sin nature. So it's impossible to be perfect. So you can perfectly keep the law, but still have a sinful nature in your heart. And so the point is we're seeking to obey the spirit of the law. Chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And he continues with all of these things. But I tell you 
that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift on the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And he goes through this again in adultery. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustily has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Divorce. In verse 31, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Continually, he says, you heard it said, but I say. You heard it said, but I say. And then, so these are our attitudes, but then you get to our affections. In chapter 6, he talks about giving. He talks about praying. He talks about fasting. And the point of this is, is when you are giving or when you are praying or when you are fasting... We aren't seeking the applause of men, but we're seeking the heart of God. And so all of these things, when you are, like when the basket came by today, if you were to say, <coughs> and hold up your check, if you come a little closer with the basket, I don't know if that basket's big enough, Boom! Pharisees, they made a big deal of their giving. It would be like, remember in church when the, when the, hem, I mean, when the offering plate was metal? It would be like going and getting all your coins, which nobody has anymore, but just so you could drop the coins in there so it makes a loud sound so everybody hears and say, Whoa! That dude's giving a bunch. He must really love Jesus. Or if you pray, would you make sure as many people heard you pray and use all of the, the words that you don't understand but makes you look good? Or when you fast, you get a makeup artist to make you look specifically gray or a little gaunt. So people think that you are looking more like Jesus because you are starving yourself. When really Jesus says your heart is wretched, and not, on, not only that, but now you're hungry. So, in our attitudes, in our affections, and then he goes to our ambitions Chapter 6, verse 31. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
So, we're not seeking the things of this world. We're seeking the kingdom of our God. I just have a flashback to commercials. I do not typically watch commercials, and I've said for the 26 years of our marriage, if ever I were elected president, the first thing I would do was make it against the law for two television stations to have commercial breaks at the same time. Because I always have a backup channel, because when the commercial comes on, click. I don't care if it's cartoons. I don't like to watch commercials. But the ones I watch, some of them are hilarious, right? Some of them are hilarious. The insurance commercial that, you know, we have a rat problem. Those are hilarious. Or I have an ant problem, and it's all the ants coming and annoying them. Those are hilarious. But, but what I continue to see in commercials are you got to have this. You are not a real man unless you have your own body wash. Or you are not a real woman unless you have this shoe. Or what? what is this? But this is what I hear when I see that stuff. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Good night. We have to. Man, when I was a kid, I had to have Nike. You couldn't wear anything but Nike. Because that's what my parents bought for me was Kuga. Anybody know that brand? That's right. There were two of us, sorry. <laughs> we wore whatever we could find or whatever was handed down, right? And so when, when I started working and made three fifty an hour, doggone, I'm wearing Nike. We weren't seeking the things of this world. And, and it is a mark of maturity in Christ to see this stuff. I'm not living for that. I don't care what people think about me for what I wear. I don't care. Think how much money you save if you don't care what people think about the car you drive. Have you seen my car? I don't care. <laughs> I don't. And when it dies, the backup truck, I don't care about that either. If you look at it as a tool, if you look at your clothes as something to cover your nakedness, and you look at your car as something that gets you where you need to be, you will honor your Father in heaven and save a ton of money. See my shoes? Walmart. We care far too much about what the world thinks of our stuff, and we care far too little of what God thinks about our heart. In chapter 7, he speaks to our admonitions, the, the things we do, the things we judge. And that's where we see the do not judge. And that's also where, <clears throat> why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Y'all, you know I'm, vis I'm a visual person. That is a hilarious picture. Here's how I read that. Why do you look at the little speck of sawdust in your eye, at your brother's eye, and you have a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye because there's a two by four in yours? How can you get close to him because there's a stick out of your head? That's bad. And so when it says, do not judge, the point is look at yourself, you hypocrite, you sinner. You have a two by four sticking out of your head. Should that not concern you just a little bit? We aren't seeking the condemnation of our brother. We are seeking the purity of our souls. If you are into judging, you will never run out of things to judge. We are sinners, right? So even if you were the perfect judge, right? Even if you had everything right, which nobody does, there's a world full of sinners. And so you're going to find something. But, again, we do these things to make ourselves look better. So if I can condemn everybody around me, then I don't have to grow up. I just stand out because I put everybody else down. So if we trip everybody in the room, Jan's the tallest if she's standing up, right? It's that mindset. Everybody else lays down, then you can stand however short you want and you're tall. And so if we put everybody else down, if we judge everybody and tell everybody else they stink, then all of a sudden we start smelling pretty good. And God's looking at these people. Jesus is saying, look guys, you're dead. You're pathetic. You stink. Think. Did you see what she was wearing? This is church talk, right? Did you see what she was wearing? Did you hear them saying, I couldn't hear? They can't teach? The way we relate to one another. But then we get to from the subject of the sermon to the seriousness of the sermon. And this is where Jesus, like every good preacher, Jesus is calling for a response. And he tells them that you have choices. And in chapter 7, verse 13, you see that there are there are only two. There are only two roads. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's two roads. One that leads to life, and one that leads to destruction. And and I think we've so Americanized this. There's no exceptions. There's two roads. And one leads to life, the narrow one, of course, and the wide one leads to destruction. And it doesn't say that the one that doesn't lead to life just leads to an unfulfilled life. It leads to hell, to devastation eternally. 
And there's only two choices. And I'm not sure if enough people believe that. I think there's at least a driveway that veers off that's a little more comfortable. There's two. And it is very, very clear that one leads to life, one leads to destruction. But just in case we don't get that, in verse 15 of chapter 7, there are only two trees. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so there's one that bears good fruit, one that bears bad fruit. The, the bad f- tree cannot produce good fruit. The good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And the bad tree, because it doesn't produce fruit, is thrown into the fire. Again, the same point. There's two choices. You know them by their fruit. Good, bad. Good is good, bad is bad. Bad doesn't last long. It's thrown into the fire. And then, verse 24 of chapter 7, he ends his sermon with one last illustration. There are only two houses. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. So there's one house that stands on the rock. And one that crashes upon itself. And this is, this is not a a childish song you know the wise man built his house upon the rock don't do the hand motions this is serious business this is a serious demise it's on the rock or it's done two choices and there's not even the choice of you know, house on the rock or house on, not sand, but it's clay. You know, clay's strong-ish, right? Two, two. It's rock or it's done. One that stands, one that crashes. And great was the fall of it. You know, it fell with a great crash. 
but we hear people speaking all the time about the storms of life. How do you stand against the storms of life when you build your house on the rock? This doesn't mean that. The storm speaking of here is not cancer. It's not socialism. This storm is the judgment of God. And so when the judgment of God comes, you're either in him or it's hell. You're either on the rock or you're done. And so there's two roads, two trees, two houses, but there's only one Savior. One Savior, Jesus Christ, King of the kingdom. And that's it. Nothing else. No one else can save. Endless amounts of money cannot save. Endless amount of praise of people cannot save. Endless amounts of church attendance cannot save. It just can't. And my fear is, far too many church people believe that it can. Surely this loving God would not send me to hell. I have been to church for 137 years. I've baked cakes for every event. I wore my Sunday best. I didn't ever cuss. Y'all, I taught the kids. If you teach kids, there's got to be a place in heaven. That's just not the gospel. And on that day, unless I have placed my house on the rock, it doesn't matter what other people thought about your house. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It doesn't matter if you spent the extra money for the, the bushes. You know? It doesn't matter if your driveway is slag or if it's dirt or if it's six inches of concrete. If it's not on the rock, it's over. It's done. Jesus said it would fall. But the good news is there's two houses, right? The good news is, is that there is a choice. I want you to think about something for a second. the fact that there is a good one of any of these is God's work. The fact that there is a tree that bears fruit at all is God's work. The fact that there is a road that leads to eternal life is God's work. The fact that there is a house that could stand on the rock is God's work. He made the rock. He made the way. He made the tree. And so we get to the point the eternal ramifications of exceeding righteousness. God's righteousness. You know, the righteousness that he requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require. And, and so the, the point of all of that is nothing we can do is good enough. It will never, ever, ever be good enough. If you double it, it's not good enough. All your life, all your money, all your time, not good enough. Jesus Christ's blow on the cross, good enough. That's it. 
And so I speak to church people. Don't be a Pharisee. Pharisees were considered very good people in Israel. They were considered the best of the best. If you wanted to know what the Old Testament said, ask the Pharisee because they know. And then Jesus comes on the scene and tells them they're all going to hell. So they kill him. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord. There's only two choices. The TV is going to tell you there's other choices. You might hear of other choices in your mind. There's two. It's heaven or hell. Christ or hell. And so hear the gospel. It's only good news if it gets there in time. If we share the gospel at your funeral, it is a good, it's good news for everybody except the corpse. Make sure that you've taken the narrow way, that your house is on the rock, and do you see the fruit that leads to eternal life? These things that only God can do. If you were trying to staple fruit on your tree to make it look alive, just see if it smells like smoke because it's getting ready to flame. To me, nothing can be more important than this. I don't want to be a pastor of people that live their entire lives as really good people, well thought of church members. And then we can't find you in heaven. It's not too late now. You know, and when you are when you're a teenager and you're wearing dork shoes, and people talk about your shoes, it hurts. But when you're mature and you grow up, you don't care. And why I say that is this. When you are immature <clears throat> and you don't know Christ, but everybody thinks you do, if you were to come out of the closet and say, you know what, I, I don't know Christ. I've been a good person I've done all of these things and I was depending on these things but the Spirit of God speaking to me now and tell me I'm not it might be embarrassing it might be embarrassing but as you mature in Christ you will see who cares what people think about me I'm in Christ now and my God is my God forever and the people who were sneering or looking down their nose at you, they'll get over it. God will deal with them for the two by four in their eye. I don't want anyone. And I say this, I'm sensitive here because that was me. That was me. I came out of a pharisaical home. and People thought I was a believer. And, and you know, I was shy and... And I believed, I was led to believe that in order to trust Christ, you had to go stand in front of the church. And I was like, look, at 13, hell seemed like a much better idea than going and standing in front of people. It just did. It's immaturity talking, but it was. And then after all, my pen said I had perfect attendance for 14 years. 
everybody thought that I was saved because I knew all the answers, because I'd memorized everything there was to memorize. I was lost. I was lost. And then this little, this little guy, he was, he was younger than me by a couple of years, but we were on a, a retreat or something with youth, and we were standing in line at a fast food restaurant. And I was in front of him or behind him, and Jonathan McCoy, he asked me, he says, so, you know, not like, do you want McNuggets? He turned to me and said, so are you saved? Do you know Christ? And that was it. The next question I hear is, do you want fries with that? You know, but, but God used that in my heart to nail me and saying, God knows my heart. He knows that I am not a believer. And though everybody else thinks I am, their opinion doesn't matter. And so hear this word. And I am praying that everyone in this room knows Christ. And that the, the fruit is obvious in your life. But if not, suck it up now. Experience the embarrassment now. And nobody here is going to say anything about you if you don't know Christ, except we will weep tears of joy because a sinner comes to faith, saving faith in Christ. And then beyond this, outside of this room, in your private ministries with your children or your neighbors or your coworkers, hear that. Take this same word home with you. Don't be the Pharisee that says you're going to hell if you don't go to church. Pharisees were good people until Judgment Day. And so lead a revival in your own lives. It's not by the works we do. It's by God's grace through faith. And once we come to faith in Christ, the fruit comes. We start to look like Christ. Our inner man stops smelling like death. But until then, lost people act like lost people. But Pharisees are lost, and they tried to act saved. And it took Christ to point them out, you're going to hell. And so hear it. Know Christ. And I want to pray. And and if you, if you don't know Christ personally, let today be the day that God breaks through the bonds of, of public opinion in your life. And I pray that he gives you the strength to not care at all of what people think about you, but you care everything of what Christ knows about you. And so I'm going to pray, and then the band's coming. I'll be here at the front <clears throat> if I can help you. But just like the 14-year-old in me, you don't have to stand here at the front to be saved. Christ's Holy Spirit can chase you down no matter where you are. But I'm going to be right here. I want to pray with you. I want to celebrate, plan your baptism, whatever it is. But would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we come to you hearing your word and we thank you for it god we thank you that you give us the truth you tell us the truth and even if it's the hard truth 
It's the truth we don't want to hear. When it seems easier to spend $99.95 to buy salvation, that seems cheaper than giving our whole lives. But that's simply not the truth. Lord, show us our heart, even right now. Show us the truth. And even if we've been lying to ourselves our whole lives to this point, show us the truth while there's time to do something about it. Lord, there's time to build a foundation on the rock. But once judgment day comes, a storm will sweep us away otherwise. So God, let this day be a day where we are free in you because of what you've done for us. Help us to see that your love really is amazing. And it's not dependent upon how much money we have or what clothes we wear or the good works that we do to try to buy our way in. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.